Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Good afternoon, everyone, or for those of you farther west, I guess it's still good morning. Um, I want to welcome everyone to the April edition of Surety Today. I hope you all are enjoying some uh, sunny weather and not just rain showers. Uh, We finally have some blue sky here in Maryland after uh, a lot of rain this week. So uh, my name is Cindy Rogers-Ware, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright Constable in Skeen based uh, in our Baltimore office. And for our longtime followers who are used to hearing uh, Mike Stover start our segment um, and hear his dulcet tones uh, speaking to you during Surety Today, um, I have actually given him a break, a a month off. So uh, for better or worse, you are stuck uh, with hearing my voice for uh, this Surety Today segment. Um, but as Mike would say also, um, we want to thank you for supporting our Surety Today program. Uh, we always like to open our episodes with that thank you and also ask you to pass along our contact information to your colleagues who may not um, have participated in this before or uh, new colleagues to the industry uh, to you know, reach in and check out our podcast, and if you would like or share our Surety Today posts on your social media platforms, that would be great so that it lets other Surety folks that you are connected to see the post so that they can uh, join in and listen as well. Um, We are now up to uh, 69 prior episodes of Surety Today. I don't, it's kind of amazing to believe that we've gotten that far along, but, uh, but they are all available to listen to anytime. Um, We have them on multiple platforms, so you can see them or hear them on our website from wcslaw.com. They're available as a podcast on Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Stitchers, or Podbeam. I'm not sure I even know what half of those are, but uh, for those of you who do, please go join them there, or we also have our microsite at suretytoday.net. Um, So I have muted the line so that we don't hear any background noise, and I will uh, unmute it at the end for questions. So let me get started uh, by saying that today's episode is about critical construction issues for the performing surety. Um, And what I wanted to speak about today is less about the, the preparation of legal documents you know, the negotiating of the takeover agreement and the completion agreement and ratification agreements, uh, not so much about that as, as that gets discussed a lot and written about a lot, but more about the, the sort of practical, logistical construction issues uh, that, that are faced by a surety that elects to uh, perform after a default. And these would be applicable in in both a a public contract and a private uh, bond situation 
though um, the way that the abugis behave in those scenarios is often uh, different in the private and public sector and also who the abugi is, whether that's an owner or a general contractor. But so we are looking at a scenario here where there has been a, a performance default declared and a termination where the uh, documents required there to be a formal default termination. And you as the surety have determined that the best course of action at this time is to take over and uh, complete uh, the balance of the contract. Now, in my experience, how easy or how successful that takeover process uh, will be is often determined by your ability to easily access um, key project information as well as getting cooperation from the obligee and or the principal and hopefully both. But um, as we know, that is oftentimes not the situation. Most of you have uh, read and many of you have probably drafted uh, that what I call the letter, quote unquote the letter, uh, that sureties send out to obligees upon receiving notice of a default. And that letter uh, generally does include a, a pretty lengthy uh, list of requested documentation um, that the surety is looking to obtain from the obligee uh, to investigate the basis for the default and the viability of the default and termination. Speaking of the issue of cooperation, um, many times after that letter is sent to the obligee, um, we hear um, one of the following responses. Uh, the first one is that I don't have any obligation to provide you with these documents. All I have to do is declare default and you need to act or something to that effect. Uh, the second one would be I don't have time to gather all of this documentation and get it to you right away. I'm in the middle of trying to get this already troubled project um, completed. So basically, if you think you're going to get this in any way to make a timely decision, um, you know, forget about it. Or the third response that we often hear is, your principal has all this information, so go get it from them and stop bothering me with this list of demanded documents. And to be fair, most of the documents on that list um, are documents that your principal should have and should be able to provide you. But as we know, not all principals are as cooperative as they can and should be. Um, in certain circumstances, your principal may have closed its doors, gone out of business, and is nowhere to be found, and is certainly not responding to your efforts at communicating. Um, sometimes it is because they have literally shut their doors and they're gone. Uh, sometimes I think it's just an issue that they have sort of also maybe in conjunction mentally shut down and they just don't have the ability or desire to get you 
what you need, um, somehow thinking that if they sort of go run away and hide, that everything is going to miraculously go away, uh, including that you know pesky indemnity obligation, uh, when we all know that all, the, all that the lack of cooperation does is drive up the indemnity costs, um, whether that's because we have to go file a lawsuit to get access to books and records or jump through a million hoops to get uh, the books and records or hire outside consultants. Um, but we all know that that lack of cooperation just has a negative impact on the uh, indemnity. Um, but some principals are also resistant to giving the surety the information because they believe and are somewhat indignant that the termination of their contract was wrongful and that somehow the surety taking over is some indication that you have uh, accepted the obligee side over the principal side on this termination issue. And even though you are assuring them that you are reserving all their rights to contest the termination and are trying to mitigate the damages in case you know the termination does not get overturned, um, that what you're doing would actually mitigate their damages as opposed to letting the obligee uh, do whatever it wants, um, there's still that resistance there. And sometimes it, it's quite an effort to convince those particular types of principles to, to cooperate um, and get you uh, the information that you need. So what do you, from a construction standpoint, need to successfully uh, become a performing surety? Well, the first and I think the most key construction issue that you'll face is figuring out the scope of work that's left to be completed. Um, so obviously, in every contract, you have the base contract scope of work. And hopefully, even if you don't have all of the documents that you have requested and demanded, that you at least have managed to get a copy of the entire contract including the contract documents, which typically would have the plans and specifications that would flesh out in the detail needed the, what the scope of work is. Beyond that, of course, then you have to figure out how much of that base contract scope of work was completed prior to the principal's default termination and what amount remains. Then there's a sub-tier beyond that where, well, what if it was completed? We still need to figure out whether it was completed um, appropriately and in a manner that the obligee is going to accept, uh, meaning it could have been completed, but it was completed defectively, uh, in which case it either needs to be corrected or replaced, uh, or it's at least non-conforming, meaning it, it, it works, but it's not what the obligee bought in the contract. So then that question becomes, is the obligee going to live with what was installed or constructed um, with some kind of deductive change order, or is the obligee going to insist that whatever was installed be removed and replaced with something that conforms to the contract terms? Those are all steps that need to go into the evaluation of the remaining base contract scope of work to be performed. The next thing that you have to do is also figure out quite quickly whether there are some kind of emergency 
steps that obviously are not specified in the scope that are needed because of the termination and the delay? Um, are there, is there incomplete work uh, that needs to be protected from the elements in order for it not to be um, damaged uh, beyond repair? Are there stored materials that need to be um, secured or put someplace else, um, removed from a, a warehouse uh, that was controlled by the principal or, or a vendor of the principal? Are there stored materials on site that need to be better secured so that they don't uh, disappear off the job site uh, mysteriously as often happens on, on troubled projects? Uh, those are all things that will go in and impact your scope of work um, so that you know you may not you may have to buy something twice if those steps aren't evaluated um, at this time while you're investigating the default. So beyond the contract, um, what other sources of valuable information and documentation uh, can you access? Uh, well, obviously, it's always very important and I'm sure more challenging um, in the last couple of years because of COVID, but to do site visits, um, either your own in-house team or outside consultants, to, to actually observe the work in place, the stored materials, what things look like, um, and also to, to recommend any emergency steps that might need to be taken. Speaking, either you again or your consultant, speaking to someone with knowledge uh, from the obligee, which is usually often a site person um, that has the most detailed knowledge of the ins and outs and what's going on, or hopefully your principal, or if you can locate someone, the former project manager or superintendent from your principal who is still willing to speak with you, um, they are, they really help figuring out uh, some of these key things without having to dig through thousands of pages of documents. Um, payment applications are a good source of information. If they are a decent payment application like the AIA uh, form that has a detailed schedule of values because it will show you at least what the owner or obligee approved as the percentage complete uh, and what has been paid and what has not been paid and how much retainage is left. So those percentages complete at least will give you some idea of the remaining scope of work that needs to be completed. Project meeting minutes, um, if, if they are taken and they're done properly, which again varies by project, but they might be weekly, they may be bi-weekly, but oftentimes they will address specific, uh, they'll, they'll give a general overview of where things stand on the project, what's coming up next, uh, and give an idea not only of what's completed, but the, the flow of the project and, and where things stand. So those can be a very useful tool for refining uh, the remaining scope. Uh, there might, depending on where things are in the project completion, there may be various inspection report, reports, either from vendors like manufacturers who have to issue warranties and have to do inspections before they're willing to issue their warranties or from local government agencies that have had that have to do inspections during the course of the project so close out inspections things uh, MEP fire those type of things are very important to get a handle on 
where things are with completion and what still needs to be done. Um, if the project is at close to the punch list stage or there are or there are punch lists for different phases of the project, those can also be useful for helping you ascertain um, what's left to be done uh, and what needs to be corrected. Finally, when you get to the stage of having potential completion contractors come in, uh, they will almost always go do site visits in addition to reviewing what you've provided to them. They will almost always also go do site visits and they may um, sort of as the experts in that field, they may um, raise attention to issues that you may not have noticed. Uh, and it's very important once you get to that phase and you're negotiating a completion contract to address issues of both you know, compensation for repairing patent defects as well as what happens when inevitably there's some latent defect that gets discovered um, once they're on site and working. So that's kind of where we are with, with the base contract. But there are very, very few construction contracts that don't end up with change orders. Uh, so in addition to sort of ascertaining where things are with base contract completion, you're going to have to do an analysis of change orders. Um, and if there are any outstanding change order requests from your principal or uh, construction change directives that were issued by, by the obligee. Um, this is all part of the scope of work, though it is its own sort of subcategory. Um, it, it's always difficult when you get into a situation where the um, principal says that it has outstanding change order requests that are, are valid and there's not going to be a loss on this project because all these outstanding change order requests are going to end up you know, with a much higher contract balance. Uh, and then you go to the obligee only for the obligee to say that there isn't anything outstanding and anything that had been requested has already been addressed or rejected. Uh, in that case, you've got to then go sort of back up and assess that if you can get a hold of them, those outstanding change order requests that the principal contends and, and make your own independent analysis of are they valid substantively? Um, is this legitimately a change order or was this really something that the principal should have understood was in the base contract? Are they timely procedurally? Um, every contract has a provision for notice of a change and then the probably a later time for getting in all the documentation. Did the principal meet those two obligations timely? And finally, are the costs that the principal is, is presenting sufficiently documented um, per the contract requirements such that the amount that the principal is claiming is, uh, is legitimate or not? Those all have to be addressed and hopefully worked out in ultimately in your takeover agreement, though sometimes uh, you just have to leave them open um, in the takeover agreement and, and address you know, what are outstanding issues so that you can go ahead and move forward. Now, one of the other challenges of creating a, of, of doing a takeover agreement is when the the obligee has decided to supplement the principal's 
work when uh, the principal was sort of teetering toward a default and after the default. And the problem there uh, with that situation is, of course, that then you're looking at a moving target for what your scope of work is. So at some point, you and the obligee need to decide, okay, that supplementation is going to stop so that we can put a clear amount of scope in the completion agreement uh, and, and cut off that supplementation. And finally, the last part of, of scope that we don't always think about because we're thinking about, you know, the actual boots on the ground part is the closeout documentation, uh, which is always O&M manuals, warranties, lien waiver releases, um, that before you get final payment, all that stuff has to be turned in to the obligee. And those can really be a challenge for a performing surety to get those from the uh, principals, early trades who are maybe months or even a year gone from the project may have already been paid out by the, by the principal when it was still not having financial difficulties and trying to secure uh, those documents some, from somebody where you don't have the leverage of holding payment over their head is, is a challenge. Um, there are often requirements for insurance coverages to continue post-completion, whether that is completed operations coverage or professional liability coverages, um, whether those are still being maintained and what the obligee is going to do if, if they have been canceled due to non-payment or you just can't get the documentation that they are being maintained uh, is also a challenge to, on this closeout uh, component. Um, and then finally, there are, there are warranty issues. Um, what if a, a roof warranty is supposed to be provided um, and now another contractor is going to be finishing that work? Can it be assigned? Is it invalidated? Um, where does that go in terms of being able to get the contractually required warranties when there is a, a turnover uh, in, in the contractor performing the work? Finally, one more thing with the supplemental labor. Um, if defective work um, is discovered and it's someplace where the supplemental labor uh, was also performing, uh, who's responsible, who did it? It's not always clear whose labor is what. So those are the big challenges on scope. Payment, of course, is also always a big challenge. Um, Hopefully you will at least get an accounting from the obligee as to what it has paid the principal prior to the default, um, getting the payment applications, the principal's accounting records, um, and then you're addressing, of course, whatever uh, obligee set-off claims they want to impose on the contract balance for either supplementation, for emergency measures, uh, the obligee's own increased management costs, and then, of course, everyone's favorite, uh, delay damages, including liquidated damages. Sometimes the obligee also wants to set off damages under other non-bonded contracts it has with the principal. Um, the other issue that comes into play here that, that you have to investigate is what happens if the obligee overpaid for the value of the work? You know, they were trying, either they were trying to help out the principal that was in distress by paying them early, um, or they paid for what should have been observed to be defective work. Uh, those are the types of issues that you're going to go roundabout in trying to figure out whether the parties can reach agreement on 
the contract balance and what part of that is going to be uh, released to the surety for completing the work. Uh, one of the other issues that comes up, of course, is also if you want to bring the principal subcontractors back. Um, it used to be a fairly simple process to do that, um, and oftentimes they would just accept an assignment of their, of their subcontract to continue working. Uh, these days, with labor shortages and uh, supply chain issues, uh, I doubt that we're going to have a time where that's going to happen. I think we're going to expect to have substantial price increases if we expect subcontractors to come back under ratified subcontracts. The last issue that really that gets addressed is, of course, the time for performance. The contract is going to tell you when the original start and end dates were, change orders may have modified those end dates, and of course the contract will set forth the parameters for whatever delay damages are recoverable by the obligee. Then you're going to have to have someone evaluate the schedule and the schedule updates. Uh, the meeting minutes also may provide useful information to investigate the delays and their causes because as a surety, you're going to want to look for evidence of either excusable delays or at least concurrent delays where the principal and the obligee uh, were both concurrently delaying it in an effort to um, minimize as much as possible the assessment of actual damages or liquidated damages and hopefully negotiate um, a waiver or reduction uh, or a non-compensatory time extension to try and eliminate those delay impacts on the contract balance. Uh, one other issue that sometimes comes up and can be successfully negotiated is how long it took the obligee to default the principal. Um, an obligee can't delay defaulting a principal to um, increase its own uh, uh, damage assessment uh, just to get that. Uh, you know, it, it can't get a windfall from, from delayed damages. So sometimes you can su successfully argue that the obligee should have default defaulted the principal sooner. Well, we are running out of time, so I don't want to, I, would, I don't want to um, eliminate your question period. I just do want to say that before um, I open it up for questions, that um, the next edition, May's edition of Surety Today, will be on May 9th uh, at our usual time of 1230. Uh, also, some upcoming events in the Surety world, um, the Southern Surety Claims Conference, uh, uh, will be held on April 27th to 29th. Um, you can say hi to Mike Stover if you're going to be there. Uh, somehow he gets to go to that in beautiful Clearwater, Florida. Um, and then the ABA FSLC spring meeting will be held on May 5th and 6th in Hilton Head. And wow, Mike is speaking at that. So I'm not sure how he got uh, all this fun adventure. So, um, but anyway, thank you everyone for uh, joining me today and listening to me the entire time. I appreciate it, and I'm going to uh, open up the line. So does anybody have any uh, questions, or did I lull everyone to sleep? <laughs> no, you did a nice job with your presentation. Thanks, Cindy. No problem. 
All right. Well, I'm not hearing any questions, so I will let everyone go. Uh, enjoy your day, and we uh, hope you tune in um, to our next uh, Surety Today in May. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.